Welcome to this episode of the Josias Podcast. This episode, we have myself, your host, Joel, and co-host, Potter Edmund. Sadly, Elliot is in boot camp learning to be some sort of uh, soldier or secret operative, I believe. But we are joined by special guest, Felix, who has written several provocative articles on the Josias previously. We're very lucky to have him here. Before we begin this week's discussion about... uh, about liberalism. Potter, why don't you introduce the music we heard? Okay. Uh, hi, Joel. Hi, Felix. Uh, the music we heard was um, the, the so-called Liguriana Seufzer by Johann Strauss Jr. Um, and it's mocking the redemptorist uh, religious who were expelled from Austria during the 1848 revolution. The Redemptorists that were founded by uh, St. Alphonse of Liguri. That's why they're called Liguriana in Austria. And in Austria, they were introduced by St. Clement Mary Hofbauer, who um, was an anti-Enlightenment, um, sort of neo-Baroque um, figure. And uh, in, the, in 1848, the liberals were um, rebelling and the Redemptorists were seen as being allied with Metternich and with uh, the old order of things, and so they drove them out. Uh, wonderful. What a, uh, what a great introduction to the liberal side. <laughs> Such a, a cheerful piece of, of, of light, uh, lyrical music, <laughs> all, about, all about suppressing a religious order, uh, <laughs> or at least exiling them. Uh, so way back when... And we and we've discussed this in previous episodes. We had uh, the start of this uh, integralist moment was when people started writing about illiberalism, and there was a few people who were. Uh, John's Mirac was very angry about the illiberals, and uh, various people at first things were angry about them, and then we had other articles. Uh, Gabriel Sanchez wrote one in Ethica Politica, and Patrick Deneen wrote a very uh, influential influential one. Uh, called A Catholic Showdown Worth Watching. And really, before we became, before integralists took off, people were talking about illiberals. So to understand that, we we really need to talk about what is a liberal? What are are the illiberals reacting against? Uh, So this is the first episode, I guess, where we'll be talking not about a concept uh, that is key to our own understanding of the good in politics, but rather about uh, an enemy concept, as it were. And before I throw it open, I just wanted to read this brief quote to sort of frame things from Richard Rorty uh, uh, from an article, or, or I guess a book called Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. He says, this historicist turn has helped free us gradually but steadily from the theology and metaphysics, from the temptation to look for an escape from time and chance. It has helped to substitute freedom for truth as the goal of thinking and of social progress. I sort of liked that because it seems to me that that really encapsulates a lot of different strands of liberalism, which is a fairly protean movement. So let's throw things open. Potter, Felix, why don't you tell me what is liberalism at its root? Where does it come from? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you put things in the contemporary context of people using the term illiberal, which of course is uh, 
they're trying to distinguish this whatever the opposition to liberalism is from its its usual counterpart term which is at least in american english if you're not a liberal you're a conservative but if you take the view that liberalism and conservatism the way we talk about them in the united states are in some way two sides of the same coin and you don't want to flip the coin anymore uh then we get the term illiberalism but i think if you look closely, the people that used the term illiberalism, at least who began to use it, uh, were themselves liberals. Yes. Because, of course, to be illiberal is a, is a great vice, right? Uh, right. And eleutheria. You're, you're not, you have no liberality. Uh, and, and, you know, Patrick Deneen, for example, prefers to call the, the non-liberal mainstream of Catholics popping up radical Catholics, which... Right radicalism and that seems to be another paradox but so we're 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 searching i suppose uh unlike rorty for a for an escape or what might be the outside let's just think about it if we weren't liberals and of course for catholics or as a catholic critique whatever you think liberalism is uh and however you think liberalism started some 500 years ago it certainly was opposed to uh forms of catholic political thought or, or dominant or mainstream, uh, medieval, if you will, uh, or early modern ways that Catholics were thinking, specifically Spanish Catholics. Right. So, so the interesting thing there is, thank you so much for that, because uh, I'm so used to talking about liberalism in a certain way, I forgot to, I meant to, but I forgot to preface it by saying liberalism in the term sense that we're going to be talking about it isn't, you know, uh, just the opposite of uh, conservatives. Those are what you might call left liberals and right liberals. But originally, it's something that sort of is is everywhere now. It's it's the dominant ideology that both sides have. So you were talking about uh, 500 years ago. Where does it start then? Well, if you take liberals' own view... Take, take, take the liberals' views themselves about where they say liberalism begins. And usually you get some version of uh, uh, a, a story that begins in the wars of religion with, with religious toleration. Uh, uh, the liberals are those that agree to uh, eschew first principles uh, of how we should worship God or who God is or who the gods are or what's pleasing to that. And, and coming up with things that... Uh, let's say are are less demanding to discover you know what what can we what can we use as the found, as the practical foundation of a, of a modus vivendi or a way of living together uh, i i'd call this the virgin birth of liberalism narrative there were all these nasty <laughs> violent you know barbaric people and but and for some unclear reason of course because in the liberal mindset this had been going on since the dawn of human history but the timing isn't altogether clear. But for for some reason, you know, in the West, uh, during during the wars of religion, so, some hundred years after the Protestant Reformation, these really heat up, and all of this religious difference turns out to be violent. And one thing they one thing they will say in a sort of just so story, they'll tell some of them at least will tell the story about how you used to have the Greeks and the Romans, and they were so wise and so free, and any religion was fine, and it was very. Uh, you know, pagan and happy. And then came along those Christians who thought that their religion was true and that everyone else should follow their religion and it became absolutist. And then, you know, 
when the Christians start disagreeing amongst each other, that's where you get the real problem, right? Yeah, that's that's also a, a narrative that you hear a lot. I would add to to what Felix just said, which I think is is uh, right about liberal self understanding having to do with um, eschewing sort of absolute theological claims, allowing for theological pluralism in uh, for the sake of peace. Another sort of key um, idea in liberalism is the rejection of uh, different stations in life. And this is, to go back to the music we listened to at the beginning, really the key issue in the in 1848, um, the liberals' idea is that uh, there's there should be a legal equality among all men. That is, before the law, everyone should be the same. And this is in contrast to um, to medieval ideas, which Metternich, to some extent, was trying to restore to Europe after the deprivations the depredations of uh, Napoleon, namely that there's di- there are different stations in life. You have the nobility, you have uh, the peasantry, you have the townspeople, you have the high clergy, the low clergy, the religious. You have these different um, stations, each that has each has a different function to play in society. And each station sticking to its station and playing its function is beneficial to the whole. And there's kind of a beautiful harmony and order uh, that comes from each station playing its role. And this idea you can trace it all the way back to, um, to Plato's Republic in, in kind of a, an absurd caricatured form there, but is um, very strong in the Middle Ages. And so the you have in, in medieval um, kingdoms and so on, you have a form of, of representation uh, that divides people according to estates. So you have the estates general in in France. You have the Ständehaus in Austria, where you have uh, different um, stations in life. Different estates in the kingdom um, are represented in a different way, and their their uh, voices are weighted differently, as it were. And the liberals want to say that's unjust. Um, no man is born with a saddle, and no man is born with by nature, with this wearing a saddle, no man is born by nature, you know, booted and spurred to ride on him, as one of the American revolutionaries said. And to certainly to see certainly to see equality as the central, um, the central value of liberalism has a long history, right? Uh, so yeah. Tocqueville will see the spread of liberal democracy as primarily rooted in equality. If you talk to liberals, they'd add probably a second principle, liberty. Uh, I I imagine that when we talk about that French revolutionary triptych of liberté, égalité, fraternité, it's fraternity that actually drops out most. You know, Carrie McWilliams went searching uh, uh, in the 70s. Where did fraternity go in America? We got the liberty. We got the equality. Um, And then to, to add to the equality piece that Potter Edmund explained, I think, quite quite well, there's liberals will tell you that it's also all about freedom. And there they'll want to say that their idea of freedom is is distinct 
from an ancient notion of freedom. And uh, I suppose the classical example here would be Benjamin Constant, who gives these lectures in France in the 1830s on the liberty of the ancients and the liberty of the moderns. And so right. if the ancients thought that liberty and freedom was participating in the life of the polis um, and the, the freedom you have together in that polis, um, for, the, for the liberals, it's much more procedural. You, you lay out certain civil liberties you have, uh, in in a lot of ways, it's a it's a freedom from, uh, even though later Isaiah Berlin will give you positive liberty as well as negative liberty and explain how liberals see that. But freedom is certainly not something um, participatory and an island of freedom in a world of uh, uh, threats and enemies. Uh, uh, this sort of I'd call that older idea of freedom a republican idea of freedom. Right. Well, uh, you what you hear from in Pericles, for example. And a lot of these early liberal revolutions, you know, the American Revolution is a good example. There's a lot of scholarly debate. Is this a liberal revolution? Is it a republican revolution? Are these new mo modes and orders that we're trying to bring to the world? Uh, is there a new science of politics? Maybe Locke, maybe liberal? Or um, is America, as, as I wrote in that Josiah's piece some time ago, as, as J.G.A. Pocock, is it founded in dread of modernity? Is it, in fact, a return to the ancients? And, you know, no matter how this debate goes, the, the answer is always the same. Well, a little bit of both. And the man with the musket thinks one thing, you know, and the man in the powdered wig thinks another thing. And actually, the men in powdered wigs think a lot of different things. We like to think of our founders, I know, of having some sort of uh, angelic hive mind. But, but this isn't the case. Uh, the, these concepts of, of what freedom means. Is it not to be interfered with? This is the liberal idea of freedom, non-interference. Or is it something else? Is it, is it that I don't even want my friends to be potentially interfered with? So that we have to we have to act together against domination. It might come from the church, so we should really look out for the church. It might come from a foreign enemy. It might come from uh, from money and and wealthy people in our own society. So so you find that Republicans are are much more suspicious of capital. They're much more suspicious of religion, and they're much more suspicious of foreign enemies. So you can think of like a militarized version of a modern. A modern leftist, and 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 some of that I think is kicking around these early. So we have to suss out who are the liberals, who are the Republicans in early modernity. Um, but before uh, the we, liberal before, side is sort of yeah, certainly been been dominant in our political history. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Before we get there, though, right to their idea of freedom, which you described as procedural, and you might think of as 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 atomistic. Uh, a couple things have to happen, though, right? First. Uh, you have things like the Thirty Years' War, where neither side is able to win, and uh, despite the protestations of the popes, they decide, let's live and let live. We'll have uh, the princes can have their own religion, uh, and then you also need to have a new way of thinking about people, because the liberal imagination is. You see this uh, early and you see it in, in later thinkers such as Rawls. The liberal imagination is, imagine you're stuck on an island with a whole bunch of strangers you have nothing in common with. And rather than killing each other over the limited resources, you decide, that's awful. Let's cooperate in some limited way. So in other words, you have to get to a point where instead of imagining society as organic, you're imagining it as fundamentally antagonistic. And that happens a little bit after, I think, if my history is right, 
that happens a little bit after those first religious wars end in a stalemate. Is that right? I think that I think that's generally right. Um, I think if you look at contemporary criticisms of liberalism by Catholics, uh, um, it's it's going to be precisely a, a, a critique of liberalism will be at bottom a critique of atomism. You can think of Charles Taylor's yeah. atomism essay. It's a critique of looking at society as antagonistic. So you have John Milbank's idea that liberalism is based on what he calls an ontology of violence, where, you know, we're not made to be peace, rather than organic. So it's, so trying to get to the bottom of liberalism, the, the bottom becomes something like thinking about what human beings are, or even more broadly, thinking about what nature is as something that we're set against. Um, uh, nature doesn't work for our harmony. Uh, atomism, that it's not quite right to say, you know, for, for Hobbes's state of nature, to give a, a first example of a state of nature theory, it's not true to say that these individuals in the state of nature are asocial or antisocial. As a matter of fact, it's their collision with one another in society and their mistrust that then repels them from one another. So there's some way that man is built to desire society for Hobbes, but is just not fit for society. And now we have to artificially do something uh, to fit him, set up some sort of procedures, you know, in Hobbes' case, the Leviathan. Well, maybe I should uh, play the devil's advocate here for a second. After the Thirty Years' War, I mean, the Thirty Years' War was incredibly uh, blood bloody. It was incredibly bloody and neither side could win. Why isn't it reasonable to say, you know, you have your religion, I'll have mine. Granted, the state won't be able to do the things it used to do in quite the same way, but it can still provide peace, which is a, a, a sort of peace at least, which is a good. Why isn't that like yeah. second best answer, uh, still a good answer? Well, it's a. Um, let's think about atomism for a moment. It, it's interesting that you have, um, at the same time, you have in natural philosophy and uh, a, a kind of revolution, the, the so-called scientific revolution, and you have a return of, you have a rejection of, of Aristotelian natural philosophy and a kind of return, initially of pre-Socratic uh, models especially sort of Democritan um, atomism, uh, which conceives of nature as being built up from um, little particles that only uh, form um, accidental holes together. They don't come together to form um, true substances, but they, they form accidental holes. And um, eventually you'll get uh, very developed models that show how these uh, atoms bounce around and form the holes that they do according to uh, certain regular uh, patterns or laws that are exterior to the things themselves. It's not uh, an interior principle of motion as in Aristotelian physics, but a, a kind of exterior pattern or law. And that is uh, the way that you are going to conceive of human society as well. That is, it, it begins with um, these basic units, the individuals, um, and they're going to come together by some kind of uh, 
external laws, by some kind of procedure. And as you say, there is, if you're coming out of a time of great war, there is um, an, an war with many different... Uh, a religious war. Uh, yeah, religious war, but w- with many different sides and one that seems kind of unresolvable. Then there is uh, a kind of plausibility to despairing about uh, human community and trying to start over um, from scratch and see things uh, in terms of the smallest units. Um, but one one more observation about that uh, Genesis story, which uh, is important to keep in mind, is that the uh, part of the the problem in the Thirty Years' War uh, is. Um, is itself a, a new notion of uh, of national sovereignty that is being uh, applied by some of the powers in the Thirty Years' War, especially evident in the case of France, where Cardinal Richelieu decides to take the side of the Protestants in the Thirty Years' War, obviously not for religious reasons. Cardinal Richelieu is um, not uh, a secret Protestant. He's <laughs> convinced Catholic. He prayed his bravery every three days. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he does it um, for the sake of France, which um, he's conceiving of in a new way, not as part of, not primarily as part of the greater whole of, of Christendom, but as uh, what we would now call a nation state. And I think that's uh, an important sort of I think this interest is a, in it as primary. I think there's quite an important difference. So I've called this the virgin birth of liberalism, the idea that there's religious violence forever until liberalism. The timing is quite interesting because of course the seventeenth century wars of religion are not the first wars of religion, nor the sixteenth century wars of religion. Uh, there's before that you have any number of crusades. You have you know that that beautiful that beautiful book before Church and State, which is all about the the crusades in France and how they build up the French state even in medieval Catholic thought. The conception of what the king is and what the king's for. So not the state. Uh, the investiture controversy certainly has two religious ideas on either side, um, um, and and different ways of understanding. Um, uh, uh, so let's say politi- different political theologies. And yet these didn't become, liberals didn't emerge from the investiture controversy, nor did they emerge from the crusades of the Middle Ages. So why do they emerge from these wars of religion? One way to, to simply flip the matter on its head is to just deny that these are religious wars or to deny that in calling them religious wars, we're actually saying anything very descriptive about them at all. There's a, uh, an article that's now, I think, about mm, 20 years old by uh, William Cavanaugh, one of yeah. these radical Catholics who, who, who Patrick Deneen uh, uh, mentioned, uh, a, a fire strong enough to consume this house, where he said these are wars about the emergence of the nation state and liberalism is a sort of political tool to get people behind these sovereigns in the nation state. So as a matter of fact, liberalism is not... Uh, a referee or a sort of neutral arbiter or liberalism, something that doesn't have a side in these wars of religion. Uh, the liberals are those advisors of the sovereigns that teach them, well, if you will have to do this in order to maintain sovereignty. L- liberalism emerges on the side of the state 
uh, and as the governing ideology of those states. And I think it's sort of important for people that want to criticize the liberalism to at least be open to this idea that that it that liberalism uh, is a is a force within the wars of religion, and it takes a side, and in some ways it's on the side of the state. Uh, it's not quite neutral. I, I think this is uh, important to sort of investigate that question at least where yeah yeah i think that's why it's it's uh, important to to study the relation of of hobbes and locke because in hobbes you have still kind of the uh, a sort of proto-liberal um conception but one that is in many ways still very illiberal because it's totally at the service of an absolutist state um but the principles Hobbes's principles are basically accepted lock, stock, and barrel by uh, by Locke. He just uh, he just um, changes the conclusion, as it were. Then it's not a, an absolute state that you want, but a limited one. Right. How much liberty are you going to give up? Not all of it, but but some of it to protect these fundamental things. And that kind of an irony of liberalism is it likes to see itself as all about rights and all about allowing people to discover their own ends and things like that. But in doing this, it has to create uh, absolute sovereign of some sort. And liberals always have to have the sovereign state, which is, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's really a new thing that liberalism develops, uh, a new idea of the all-powerful sovereign. Whether or not the, there are limited limits to it or not, whether you go Hobbes or Locke, I think it's still the same new idea. Yeah, it really is. And you can see that even as late as, to return to our, our uh, lighthearted music at the beginning, even as late as 1848, one of the main demands of the liberal revolution, in Austria, it's the, it's the March Revolution. You have the February Revolution in France, and then in March, it's Austria's turn. And one of the demands of the March revolutionaries is the abolition of uh, um, particular jurisdictions. That is, you had various um, nobles and uh, even um, certain bishops and monasteries in Austria who had uh, what was called high justice. So Heiligenkreuz, for example, my abbey, up to 1848, we had high justice um, on our feudal lands, meaning the abbot of Heiligenkreuz could um, condemn people to death, and uh, this, you know, is completely contrary to the idea of a, an absolutely sovereign state with a monopoly of uh, on violence that will be then theorized by Weber just a few decades later. And one of the demands of the March Revolution is to uh, is to take away these uh, particular jurisdictions and sort of monopolize justice in the hands of a centralized state. At this, your, at, does, at this point, I, sorry. Know? Go ahead. Does your Joel. abbot know you want to give him back the power of life and death? <laughs> we haven't discussed this. <laughs> at this point, I'd like to, um, I'd, I'd maybe uh, ask Potter Edmund a little bit more. This notion of stations and having a station in life, this sort of uh, anti-egalitarian, well, let's say non-egalitarian idea. This this and somehow is based is based upon not buying into, uh, for lack of a better term, we'll call it an atomistic ontology or an atomistic view of nature. So, what kind of view right. of nature would lead one to have this uh, uh, 
you know, to these no this notion of estates as being natural and so on. Yeah. So it's an idea um, that sees the perfection of particular beings as being found in um, a larger order and uh, a, an order that is good for them. It's a, it's a common good in the sense that we talked about in our very first episode of this podcast, a common good in the sense that the particular beings, strictly speaking, only the rational beings, because only rational beings can enjoy a good to the fullest extent. The particular beings are the beneficiaries of this greater order. Um, but it's not uh, ordered to them the way uh, a useful good is ordered to me. It's not like wine, which is my good and it's ordered to me. I'm its end, as it were. Although I'm a beneficiary of the greater order, nevertheless, it is something more important than me. It's something to which I can devote my life and um, to which I am ordered in a sense. Ordered not, again, it's not like I'm wine and, and the order, the larger order of which I'm a part is uh, a super person who enjoys me as it's wine. No, I'm still, the, it's still the particular beings who enjoy this good, but they are ordered to it. And you see this in, um, I mean, very clearly in, in Augustine and in, in St. Thomas. In, well, in Dante, you have a very beautiful poetic description of the entire world, uh, in, including uh, heaven, hell, and purgatory, um, as this greater order. And that is seen as being mirrored in um, individual persons as micro cosmoi, as uh, uniting various parts of creation. And, and so the order of uh, virtue in the individual soul will order this universal order, but also um, in human societies. So, uh, the Holy Roman Empire is seen also as kind of a model of the whole universe. And the different uh, stations in life within it have um, different roles to play analogous to the different parts of the universe. And it's good for each of the, for each of the stations and for each individual person um, who has some particular station in life. It's good to be part of that greater order and to play their allotted role in that order. Um, and it would be disordered if, say, um, the peasant wanted to play the role of the townsman or vice versa. So that, that really uh, reminds me of the way in which liberalism loves to talk about dignity, but it has a new definition of dignity, where in the old order, it seems to me that dignity is something that you achieve through your actions by or, and through your role, through your station. You mm -hmm. gain dignity. Uh, whereas in the new notion of dignity, it's the confusion. Uh, uh, you, we were talking earlier about this passage from Charles DeConnick, where he talks about how Spinoza really clearly confuses being simply with goodness simply. Yeah. So that dignity ends up being just something that you have on account of what you are, and therefore, everybody has the same dignity no matter what. And also, they can't lose it no matter what they do. And they can't really gain anymore no matter what they do. That's probably a pretty late development in liberalism. Um, uh, you know, Kant, uh, Kant's liberalism, 
of course, uh, contemporary Catholic personalism is influenced by this sort of thing. Uh, a notion of dignity right. as 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 inherent. Uh, it, for for Kant, I think it's quite important because it means you can't. Uh, dignity means you can't alienate the things that are yours by right. You can't sell yourself into slavery, for example. You have no right to do that because of your dignity. And very different than Cicero's idea of dignity, which is based on your station or or office in society. But in the interim, you know, the early liberals don't have such highfalutin notions of dignity. You know, Montesquieu says your worth is uh, the price you would fetch in the slave market. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I never read that. And, uh, and so, and, and Hobbes, Hobbes has a similar notion of worth. Uh, your worth is uh, um, basically what other people think you're worth. Um, and how much you can square that with your own self-esteem. And, and this sets up one of the struggles that makes society sort of impossible in Hobbes' state of nature. Uh, you're, you're always worried about your own worth and feeling honored, dishonored, and so forth. Your vainglory, you, sort of, you, you don't, can't properly calculate your worth. And so you're... you're it's, it seems to me here, maybe we can talk about this uh, now or, or later. It seems to me here that one of the features of liberalism is that it's it's more of a, a family of beliefs. It's it's more almost you know Wittgenstein's family resemblance than one distinct thing because you still will meet people uh, to this day who really think of worth as being you know what you could fetch on the open market. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's definitely also that dignity uh, tradition where there's the inherent dignity and that isn't something that you achieve. It's just something that you have. Right. What are the main one of, brands? One of the, sorry, one of the, one of the driving forces behind this, I think too, is, um, is what to use sort of a Marxist jargon is um, an economic development. That is, it's the development of the bourgeois class um which develops out of the the townspeople which is one of the stations in in medieval europe but even in the middle ages the townspeople have kind of uh there's a certain amount of tension between the burghers the townspeople and the rest of uh, medieval society which is mostly a rural society but what you get in modernity is a huge expansion of uh the bourgeois class to use to use that phrase, it's it, it's becoming a class in the Marxist sense. I don't think you can say that there were classes in the in the Marxist sense um, before the 19th century, but they're they're sort of coming into being, and um, it comes into being with the development of capitalism, um, and with uh, greater division of labor, um, mass production, and so on. Uh, and you have a, a, a great migration of many peasants into the towns, um, which then uh, brings about a new class that is, as it were, under the bourgeoisie. Then you have the proletariat, which are sort of, uh, which is the, the proletariat is originally sort of these peasants who leave their land and go to work for bourgeois um, uh, producers. And it's really this bourgeois class that that begins that is is really the driving social force behind liberalism. Um, in France, uh, that's that's very clear in especially in the in the early phase of the revolution, 
it's really the the bourgeoisie that is uh, that is driving it, and they feel kind of um, they feel that the order is unjust because they're the ones who are really producing all the wealth. The, there's this huge increase of wealth, and it's down to them. They're making all this stuff, and then you've got these lazy um, aristocrats who have all the power, who are just you know sitting on the land, um, or in France's case, many of them sitting at court and twiddling their thumbs, while uh, their stewards are are taking care of the land, and um, and there's a great sense of injustice in the bourgeoisie, that, although they're the most productive part of society, as it were, they're what's bringing about the uh, you know the realization of the Cartesian vision of of man's domination of nature and all these things. Um, yet they have they have no political power. Yeah, but, and, uh, so then you re- they reject the whole scheme of stations in life. So I think here we have two um, arguments about what's fundamental to liberalism. Uh, we have one argument that uh, uh, early modern natural science, a return to a pre-Socratic atomistic democracy and conception of nature, um, erodes station and this idea of cosmic order of some sort that would, would inform your imaginary behind some sort of medieval uh, political architecture like the Holy Roman Empire. And, and secondly, we have this identification of liberalism with bourgeois interests, uh, as opposed to, say, the class interest of the proletariat, which would be communism. And so we could we could oppose liberalism and socialism in that way as well and say that liberals are those that argue that they have property rights um, uh, and their property rights are important to respect. I, I, I want to um, pull back from that a little bit um, to say that the, the first definition of liberalism, uh, which is let's say more abstract than bourgeois interests, this, this view of nature, um, isn't liberals don't share a view of nature. And, and I think Joel rightly pointed to us to the fact that, um, you know, liberals today, you can think of so many debates that go on, uh, don't share an idea of, of what marriage is. They don't share an idea, uh, of, of what, uh, uh, your, your sex or your gender is. Um, so there, there, it seems odd to, to reduce liberalism to a view of nature where we see that, you know, views of human nature vary, vary so widely. And I think one reason for that is the, the, the intrusion of, of, of history into nature. Um, is there a sort yeah, of uh, natural law? Um, are there natural rights that are evident to reason, that are permanent and fixed? Uh, truths like all men are created equal, that we have some sort of epistemic access to. I suppose that's more of the classical liberal nature-based view. And then there's more of a history-based view. Well, we don't have that kind of access, but we do know things about history. And you throw Rousseau and Kant and Hegel push you more in this direction. And I think we have, uh, this is sort of the the genesis of a, what we might call progressive liberalism uh, right. or, or simply now uh, you know, if you're Rush Limbaugh, these are the liberals. Um, so there's there there are these two sort of, and then we have a family of liberalism. You know, we have progressives on the one hand and classical liberals, uh, a sort of family we'd call more conservative. I actually want to lay down a little bit more of a provocation here and say that that doesn't give us the whole family tree. That doesn't even get us to the heart of what liberalism is all about. Okay. I think from from whether you're Potter Edmund or Patrick Deneen or uh, uh, Richard Legutko, uh, the Polish philosopher has a great, he calls liberalism, uh, liberals, 
anthropological minimalists. And like, but but what, what liberalism is at the very basis, the very basis of liberalism is a kind of ontology. It's a, it's a view of nature. And maybe their view of nature is so vacuous that they need to bring in history and they argue about it. Um, but I'm, I'm more interested, I suspect, well, I wonder about that because it just depends what we're doing when we want to talk about liberalism. When we talk about liberalism, are we trying to say, uh, identify beliefs my students have today? Are, are, when we talk about liberalism, are we trying to make a description of the attitudes of people around us? Or are we trying to make a claim about the, the philosophy of history? Because these, these might be two different things. And then how do we bring those two things together? Um, and as a descriptive claim, I think ethics is much more important to liberalism. I think liberals share an idea that we don't really need to talk about nature. We just need to be gentle and, and, and not cruel to people. And it's pretty easy to see what cruelty is. Uh, or maybe if we go to college and we, we read Judith Butler or, or Foucault, we'll realize how, how cruel we're being to people and their identities. But, you know, that actually gets a bit difficult to see what, what kind of psychological cruelty we can do. Um, but, but they're still liberals because liberals want to avoid cruelty and say that's the sort of, that's the sort of minimum. So I'd put that forward as a as a contrary, as a different definition of liberalism, that liberalism jumps in to history sort of ethics first. And actually, that does the best as a descriptive claim for what liberals are like around us today. Uh, they have all sorts of different ideas about nature, and it'd be hard to pin them down on it. But I think they'd agree with this ethical claim that we don't have a sort of abstruse ethical theory, natural law, whatever, to give you, Kanti and Deont. We just don't like cruelty. That's right. it. Right. And that's, 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 that's also the Rorty uh, article or book, I should say. Uh, because. Yeah, Felix gave us some readings for this uh, episode of the podcast, which uh, Joel seemingly has read. I, I'm afraid I didn't get to I do. Them. I do think, I do think <laughs> Rorty has a correct descriptive claim about what liberalism is, uh, is all about. Rorty's one of these guys who says, I don't want to talk about nature. I just don't like cruelty when I, I don't even need to talk to you about what cruelty is. I just don't like it when I see it. You don't like it when you see it. We can get along and try to make the world a better place. I'd say that actually more of, say, my students or my neighbors or the people around me, if I were to gussy up what they say, they would be more Rorty's than, say, Rawls's. But but the line I think um, Joel mentions is that Rorty says he borrows his definition of liberalism from, from Judith Schlar. And I mean, Schlar has a great book called Ordinary Vices that he's borrowing this from. Uh, but Schlar says, liberals are the people who think cruelty is the worst thing we do. Uh, and I think that's right. Liberal ironists and he, uh, are people who include among their ungroundable desires, their own hope that suffering will be diminished and the humiliation of human beings by other human beings will cease. They just hope that's true, and they're, they're, yeah. it would be hard to pin them down and, and find, oh, you're a, you're a Hobbesian on nature, you're a Kantian on dignity, you're, you're, a, you're a Hegelian on nature. Uh, actually, the whole family well, is have... liberal because they, they don't like cruelty when they see it. Yeah, but I mean, I think there you see something similar to the liberal um, approach to religion, where in the approach to religion, you say, they say, well, it's too... It, the, it's too difficult to come to agreement about um, what is really true in religion. So what we need is is a freedom of religion where each one can propose his own 
view. And in nature, you have a, a, a similar thing. It's too hard to come to um, a knowledge of the eternal things the way Plato thought you could, which would give you a, an absolute, um, and as it were, objective measure of ethics. So let's we can we can disagree about um, the ultimate principles of ethics, but so what we what we can agree with about coming together is that we you know we shouldn't be mean. That's a, seems like that's a similar move to the to the religious. I suppose move. that's right, and then we'd have a we'd we'd have to decide whether liberalism is a shared conception of nature or a shared agreement to just drop the question of nature. I think I think it's the latter. Yeah. But I also think that yeah. that's not sufficient to to arrive at what liberalism is, because I think liberalism also has a certain ethical thrust. They're not simply indifferent about nature. Oh, you know, but you happen to be a a, a Marxist. Oh, so that but that doesn't make you. Oh, but you happen to be a Nietzschean. You have the you know a sort of will to power. It's part of your. Liberals won't tolerate that. And nor should they tolerate no. that because they have an ethical principle. You know, Machiavelli wants to dodge the question of nature and just talk about history and how we should be. So I want to say, kind of with Schlar and with Rorty, that actually Montaigne is the first liberal. Uh, uh, so your French aristocrat, French wars of religion before the Thirty Years' War, uh, before the rise, really, of uh, a bourgeois class that's that's powerful in France, and then it's Montaigne who says, "I have a cruel hatred of cruelty." That, that this is where liberalism mm. – and Montaigne is saying this against Machiavelli. And Machiavelli is a very important figure because Machiavelli is the, uh, a founding figure of modern political thought because he makes politics totally autonomous. Politics is not going to be a branch of ethics. Politics has rules of its own, if you will. And liberals are going to accept that, but they're going to add one more ethical premise, I think, which is, well, you shouldn't be cruel or – and, and I think that would be give us what liberals are. So within a family of modern political thought, but with a specific, let's say, ethical valence about do no cruelty. That's so I, I have a question yeah. for you there. And then Montaigne has that, um, has that very strong ethical sentiment, as it were, coupled with, um, with a basic epistemological skepticism. Correct. Um, so it's not just that he's agreeing not to what, what are the ultimate – principles of ethics he, he thinks you can't really know the ultimate principles of ethics but you can still be against cruelty. absolutely although i think there's an invitation in montaigne uh to say that even people that are not as skeptical uh as as he is could also say that cruelty is the worst we do so i, I don't think montaigne i don't think when you you read the as a reader of the essays you have to buy his his Pyrrhonism, his skepticism, in order to buy this idea that really an aversion to cruelty is the first practical principle of our uh, of shared political life together. So, cruelty there is it is it just like the infliction of pain or something like that? And it's not even human. Yeah, he he mentions uh, you know I, I I wince when you 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 kick a dog. And he, he said, you know, admittedly, maybe I am too soft, you know, but, but cruelty is, um, uh, it doesn't even make a, an argument about what a human being is, say, which a lot of people, I think, you know, if you're John Rawls, you say, well, liberalism is political, not metaphysical. Turns out to be a liberal, you need some conception of what a person is that is metaphysical. But I think actually in Montaigne, you don't even need that. So this, this explains, if this is why what is at the heart of all liberals 
uh, it also sort of explains something that uh, I, I'd kind of wondered about in our modern particular uh, situation, which is uh, it seems that the people such as Bannon and all those guys, uh, their their big thing is not to understand liberals, but to own them. Uh, to to borrow a, uh, to, to borrow from Marx, uh, but uh, why is that? Well, it's because liberals' whole point is to avoid cruelty, and then if you're just cruel to them without really reason or or just to uh, work them up, you're sort of taking a dig at their first principle. On a more serious point, would this make liberals, all liberals, some species of quasi-utilitarian? You can definitely see where utilitarianism is going to be uh, anti-cruelty without Montaigne's skepticism. We, we, we can right. give an accounting for what pleasure and pain is. We can minimize pain or maximize pleasure. And so you can definitely see why I think utilitarianism fits squarely, even centrally, into the liberal tradition and why John Stuart Mill is probably the greatest uh, uh, liberal theorist of all time. But I don't think it's, I think it actually makes it fit squarely within emotivism, uh, what, what Alastair McIntyre and After Virtue calls emotivism. And I just bring that up to say- well, Tell that, us what that is first. Uh, so Alastair McIntyre, uh, great ethical theorist, trying to, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, neo-Aristotelianism, like like what McIntyre's doing, is brought on by the crisis that we can agree ethically about things. And so this return to Aristotle that I think has been very popular in philosophy uh, in the past several decades is due to him. But he argues that basically because we cannot agree and have no canons or principles of agreement, um, our ethical discourse, our political discourse, which never really ends up being properly ethical, disc practical reason, uh, ends up being emotional manipulation of some kind or another. Um, and so that's what an emotivist is? Yeah, that's, emotivist that's what, is. and he's now calling expressivism, but we could sort of table table what, we could just take that as a descriptive claim that our, our political discourse today is, is emotivistic. And I think what I want to say about liberalism fits that description, because what the cruel person is, is the person who's indifferent to the suffering of another. So, so cruelty isn't uh, sadism or maliciousness. Cruelty is, is not feeling an emotion. And if, I, if we want to align liberalism behind it is, it is mandatory and necessary that you feel this emotion, we can certainly uh, uh, dovetail that with McIntyre's descriptive claim about, well, that's what our political discourse is like. What do you mean you don't see this suffering? And, 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 and then I think it ends up um, showing you what sort of political issues carry the day and which don't. Um, you know, if, if you might think uh, um, abortion is a great evil, but if you can't see the suffering as much as you see the suffering of the poor young woman in that position, it's going to be her emotions that sway you. And how can you be indifferent to that? You see, right. I, I, or think, the, this, or the marriage I think this is a description stuff. about why um, people that aren't really liberals all the way down although, you know, Catholics that think they're liberals, but they're really not all the way down liberals because they, they really they really think sin is the worst thing they do. But they've just been bought into, they've just bought into liberalism intellectually. Or something. I think this is why they always lose and will always lose every political debate because they won't be able to, to muster the, the, the pity that they need to, to, to win the day in, in the public forum. 
this is why I, I you know, I, I really like this, this definition, uh, you know, and, and I don't know, I have to think about it more, but I like it because it makes uh, a recent article by Rusty Reno more comprehensible to me. I, I found it very incoherent, which doesn't surprise me given that Rusty wrote it. But uh, he's a great guy. I kid, I kid. Yeah. Uh, liberal I'm tradition, a- yes. Liberal ideology, no. It made no sense to me because he's basically saying, oh, but the illiberals, they're the ones being the good liberals because you other liberals are too ideological and we need to return to a true liberalism. His problem is that he's not really a liberal all the way down, but he's never going to be able to win a debate. Yeah. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up because I'm just being um, the call of duty is uh, uh, (laughs) being brought to me as it were. I have to go hear confessions. So, uh, but it was really fun talking to you guys about liberalism and we could go on for several more hours. Oh, absolutely. All right. Uh, Felix, it was so nice having you on. We'll have to have you on again. This was really... Yeah, I'd love it. And, uh, uh, attend to your yeah. station, Potter. Really We'd want you to do that. And <laughs> yes, uh, I look forward to continuing the, the conversation uh, uh, sometime in the future. I'm sure we will. Okay. Bye-bye.